0: everyone to the Football Odyssey podcast. This is Aaron Harris and on today's episode I'll be interviewing Jim Steed, the former senior vice president of special events for the National Football League. In his 26 years with the NFL, Jim was responsible for overseeing the Super Bowl, the Pro Bowl, and the draft from 1979 to 2004. In this interview we discuss Jim's journey within the NFL and how he transformed the Super Bowl from being just a championship game into a media and fan phenomenon that has become the largest sporting event in America. If you enjoyed the interview, then subscribe and share and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the football odyssey. You can also reach out to me in the contact section of the footballodyssey.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Now, I want to start off by asking, how did you become a football fan and what was it that drew you to the sport?
1: Oh, shoot. I think it started – I, I I first started – my first football game I ever went to was a uh, high school game on Thanksgiving between um, Winchester, Massachusetts, which was my hometown, and I think it was uh, was it either Concord or Waltham or one of those. And I remember going to that game, I probably was about eight or nine at the time, and just really liked it. And then growing up in Boston, uh, Sunday afternoons became the New York Football Giants, was what everybody watched on TV, so I really got into it at that point in time. And then when I ended up going to high school, because I was all five foot nine, I wasn't exactly going to become a star athlete particularly given that my senior cl- my class had about 550 students in it, so I was not high on the list of that. So I ended up working um, with the football team as a trainer and uh, manager and all that sort of stuff and hung around with that. And so that kind of got my attachment to everything going on in high school. So that was more or less how it started. I know when I, I ended up going to Miami, Ohio, which had a great tradition of football, um so that was part of what happened there on saturday afternoons number of guys that were there when i was there went on and on to the pros and uh even after i left and they went 12 and 0 11 and 1 and 11 1 and 1 i think in the three years after i left figures after i left but uh no i think i just loved it from a from uh early on stage it probably was my You know, basketball was a favorite sport, and so was baseball. So all three sports were things that I followed all the time.
0: Did you have a favorite player on the Giants growing up?
1: Well, here's a name that probably people will remember. Jimmy Patton was my favorite player. He was a defensive back. Uh, I think he went to Ole Miss. Uh, I just liked him as a player. You know, I I guess I figured that would be the position I could play was free safety. (laughs) (laughs) I was never going to be an offensive lineman or defensive lineman or anything like that. But uh, he was a guy I watched more than anybody.
0: And your experience as a manager for your high school team was that uh, inspiration for you to pursue a career in sports?
1: Yeah, not really. I, I, you know, I went to college, and you know, I, I thought I was. I took a. I was a major with an accounting minor. Uh, ended up working for an accounting firm for a year, and then went back to grad school uh, at Wake Forest. And my the Christmas break of my second year, my father said something to me like, you know, the discussion is, what are you going to do now? And, you know, obviously he's going to look at all these different job opportunities and things that go. So he says, well, if you're so into sports, why don't you try to do something there? So I kind of went down a dual path at that point. Uh, writing all the normal corporations you would trying to get a job, and then I wrote every sports team I can imagine, except for those in New York. Since I grew up in Boston, I didn't want anything to do with New York. Um, so I, I, which is an irony, since I ended up spending 26 years in New York. Uh, but I just thought it was something to do, and I was fortunate enough that you know, right circumstances, right time, right whatever it is, maybe right price. Uh, um, I got a job offer from the dolphins as an accountant and, uh, that, you know, I, I went at it with the approach. I'm going to do this for three years and see how it works out. And, uh, if it doesn't, then I'll try something else. I'll go back into the real world, I guess, at that point. And obviously it worked out, uh, at that point in time to do everything. And I was fortunate enough when I got there that, uh, I know this is hard for people to believe now when you look at the number of people that are in sports I think we had 15 or 16 people uh, you know in our front office at that time so there were a number of things you could do uh, the three people that were my immediate superiors you know retired, quit or were fired <laughs> <You know? laughs> within the first six months I was there and Joe Robbie the owner didn't replace any of them but gave me all their jobs so uh, I, ended up, I, I actually I was there for about three weeks and he walked into me and said, I'm putting you in charge of team travel and by the way we're going to Minnesota next week so uh, you know it was thrown the fire to do a lot of things and you know like I said because of the, the size of the office you were doing things that uh, now you look at on a resume and say there's no way you could do all that but that's the way it was back in the 70s
0: and did you join in the middle of their or right after? right afterwards uh,
1: i came in in 75 um you know we went 10 and 4 that year tied for the division but didn't make the playoffs ah. uh, lost all our quarterbacks Greasy got hurt earl morrow got hurt strock got hurt i think even jim delgazo ended up being our quarterback at, at the last game of the year when we won the last game of the year against uh, denver i remember gary Permian kicked a field goal to win that game on the- and then we had to sit around and hope that the Colts got beat by the Patriots the next day. And unfortunately, the Patriots got screwed on a call. <laughs> um, you know, I, remember, I think Steve Grogan was the quarterback. He went back and uh, – or Burt Jones was the quarterback. He went back to pass and he fumbled. And the Patriots turned it back for a touchdown and they called it uh, an incomplete pass. matter of fact, it was the first time Don Shula ever got fined uh, by the NFL, it was for a game that he didn't actually participate in, because the the call was so egregious. But that was my indoctrination into that. I had great times there, but... so
0: you, whenever you first join, you have a bunch of additional tasks that are handed to you in in addition to your job as an accountant. What were some of the things you learned in your time with the Dolphins that you carried with you throughout the rest of your NFL career?
1: Well, I was very fortunate enough to to work with Coach Shula and and George Young and Bobby Bethard, you know, three Hall of Famers for the NFL. And, uh, you know, Coach Shula gave me a great lesson in how you do things right, you know, ethics, work, and uh, what it takes to accomplish things. Uh, You know, I always tell the great story that Larry Zonka told, uh, went to Oakland, um, one game in the old Oakland Coliseum went into the locker room practice on Saturday and they're sitting in the locker room was the Raiders game plan for uh, the next day against us. And uh, Larry gave it to Monty Clark, our offensive line coach at the time and says, you need to give this to Shula, you know, this is their game plan for the next day. And so Monty gave it to Shula and the next day we got the elbow of a crap kicked out of us. And Zonka came in the locker room and said, how did that happen? We had their game plan. And he, Monty said, well, I gave it to coach and coach threw it away and says, I don't do things like that. So, I mean, to me, you know, non-cheating and non-doing and things the right way were always important. Uh, George Young spent became a great friend, uh, spent a lot of time with me. You know, I, I, our offices were downtown. They were out at Biscayne College. Uh, so I would drive by every night to deliver the mail just to get around the team a little bit. And George would sit down with me, you know, a lot of nights in his little cramped, probably fifteen by fifteen office, <laughs> and, and put the projector up on the wall. on his you know, didn't have a screen; it was on the white wall. And he taught me football at that point. And so there were a lot of George Youngisms that uh, I developed over time with him uh, there, and then. Bobby Bethard, you know, was around him a lot and taught me a lot about, uh, you know, evaluating players and looking at them and seeing what's there. Not that I ever planned to go down that path, but he helped me at least differentiate good from bad. You know, what was going on? So, I think that was really important. Uh, I think the other thing that was there was the relationship I developed with the players, most of which were my age, which was kind of nice. I mean, I was mid to late twenties. And most of the players were a lot of them a lot more successful than I were. Those that had won Super Bowls. But, you know, guys like Nat Moore and Freddie Solomon and and those guys that came in at that point in time, the same time I did, uh, we became close friends. So there was a lot of things I was taught. uh, George used to always say, you know, when you go to hire people, there are better people out there than the ones you know. You just have to go find them. And so that always was one thing I did when I ended up uh, going to work is it's not just who I knew that I was going to hire to come to work for me, but trying to find better people out there that could do the job uh, better than those that I even knew. So um, they were very, very influential with me. And, and Joe Robbie, as much as an irascible old man that he was, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he was a man that probably should be in the Hall of Fame for what he accomplished, you know. Bought that team basically with nothing, got 10% of it as a finder fee, and then ended up owning up like 95% of the team uh, by the time I left. Uh, and the ability to do that, where he found the money to do it, and all that sort of stuff is kind of amazing. And The success that that team obviously had I mean, uh, within five years, they're in the Super Bowl, you know, from the founding of the team, which is pretty unbelievable. So uh, a lot of things I learned about, uh, it was very important.
0: It feels it feels like the playbook story that you told. It's almost it almost feels like Al Davis was setting a trap.
1: <laughs> well, we never had success against the Raiders, no matter what the heck we did. You know, it was always that way. My my first game with the Dolphins was a Monday night game that the Raiders beat us. Um, it was first game of the first game of the year. Um and my first indoctrination in the, the National Football League. So that was a that was a, a different thing, but the Raiders were always Always kind of had our number all the way through it, but you're right. Whether he set us a trap with that, but Jewel didn't take Jewel didn't bite on it. Let's put it that way. But, you you know, know. And, and then you know, the year before we lost that game on the infamous you know Clarence Davis catch and NC fans. Yeah, where there's as as everybody said the one thing Jewel and everybody told everybody is you get in that situation, make sure they throw it to Davis because he can't catch. And, of course, he can't catch. And if you look at that play, he's dropping the ball. And I think Larry Ball, basically, or or Stuckey or one of those guys, runs into him and forces the ball back into his chest. And that's how he ended up catching it. So wasn't that he was going to drop it. (laughs) A lot of things changed. Kenny Stable is doing only what Kenny Stable could.
0: Now, uh, about Joe Robbie, you were – you work closely with him, and from what I understand, you actually used to go with him to the owner's meetings?
1: Yeah, that was the, the great thing that was there. It's funny. I went to my first owner's meeting in March of 76, uh, and Joe was trying, at that point in time, Joe was kind of, he was getting tired of going to meetings, which I can understand that because a lot of it, you knew what the results were ahead of time. So why sit there for eight hours in a day and listen to it, so he was kind of tired of that, but... My first league meeting, I was at the Del Coronado in, in San Diego, and I walked into the meeting room with, with Coach Shula and sat next to Paul Brown across from George Hallis. So it was kind of a, oh, my gosh, what world am I in? And Joe was one that didn't you know, he just didn't really want to go to meetings, so he started sending me you know at age 26, 27 to these league meetings. Uh, he was on the executive committee of the management council, and, uh, so he, he sent me to those meetings and we were, as we were going through negotiations with them and the agreements that didn't, we didn't do in 77, 78. So I got to sit in and get to know owners that way and got to know Roselle and things like that. So that was really important. I, I remember there was one meeting that we got called up to New York. Uh, and I went into the meeting room and, uh, Roselle popped out of the air to everybody that. We got a new uh, television agreement, which was going to pay us all the unheard of sum of two point two million dollars a year. And uh, I remember I had, to, I had to call Joe Robbie and said, "You know, what should I, how should I vote on this?" And he said, "You crazy? Absolutely, vote yes." You know, so, uh, being in as part of those things was important to my future career. You know, because I got to know people that probably shouldn't have gotten to know in my twenties, but. Uh, I think sitting there with, I think Larry Lucchino, you know, who went on to fame with the Orioles and the uh, Padres and the Red Sox, uh, was the other guy that was my age that was in there at the same time. So the two of us kind of hung out together.
0: Now, in the first few meetings that you attended, was it something that you just wanted to sit down and listen and absorb everything? Or did you want to contribute and, you know, express yeah. your thoughts as well? Listen, I was I was not...
1: You know, at that age, I was not one that was going to express my opinion unless asked. Uh, I was going to sit there and listen to everybody and absorb, you know, what was going on. Think, think of who I was in the room with, you know, between the the Roonies and the Maras and the you know the Hallises and uh, run through the list. You know, Carol Rosenblum, who was certainly a character unto himself. So you just kind of sat there and absorbed and knew what to do. I, you know, I, I knew how I was supposed to vote. Uh, you know, it was funny sometimes if we didn't know, because of where we followed as the Miami Dolphins, we followed right after the Los Angeles Rams. And as much as uh, Joe did not get along with Carol Rosenblum because of the Shula um, trade or whatever you want to call it from 1970, I was kind of told whatever the Rams do, then you do the same thing, uh, that type of thing. So I uh, took a lot of notes, <laughs> came back and gave a lot of reports of what took place in there.
0: Yeah that seems like it would be a masterclass in learning how sport the business of sports works.
1: Yeah, it really was and I I think it was, you know, watching Rosell who was the master at working the room and getting the vote, how he wanted it to be and how he presented it and how he weighed in and how he let committees kind of take the lead and then weighing in on how he wanted it to go. Uh you know, that was it was incredible to watch how that went down and I, it totally you know that, I think that when I got hired by the league, uh, it was 100% the knowledge that that Roselle had of what I did being around those league meetings. And I got a chance at one of them. I think one of the things that kind of made my name, at one point we had a league meeting, I think at the Arizona Biltmore, and in a side session I was asked to give a presentation about uh, the ticket office. So I gave a half hour presentation to the owners on the value of the ticket office and what it is and what you've got to do with it and how you, you know, it was, I think I started out with the idea that, you know, your public relations department is really your publicity department, but your ticket office is really your public relations department because that's the one place that fans come in contact with the team and trust me. And I said, if, if Greasy threw an interception in the fourth quarter, they didn't call Shula up, you know, they called the ticket office up to talk. So it was important to keep them in the loop. And I think that made an impact on everybody that was kind of coming out party as far as everybody knowing what I knew and, and what I could do.
0: And Roseau being a public relations man, I'm sure he really appreciated that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think they, I think I understood it too, more than anything.
0: So how did you make the transition from being an accountant for the Dolphins to moving to the league office?
1: Well, I think at, at a point in time in, in 79, you know, Joe Robbie had 11 children. And the children were starting to come back and, and one of them was coming back. We'd kind of gotten sent off to law school. Uh, and they were going to, it was going to bring him back. And I think I was probably full and full of myself at the time. So I probably thought it was time to move on, but you know, I had self confidence in myself mistaken, uh, and reached out and then, uh, I, I actually went up to interview for a job with the jets and, uh, uh, Jim Cancel, who had been with the league office and was with the Jets at the time, says, I mean, why don't you go over and see Pete for a while? And so I went over to see uh, Roselle, and he basically said, listen, before you make a decision what you're going to do or what, what's going to take place and the contract expires, blah, 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 come talk to me before you make a decision. And so I did and uh, went up there. It's one of those great interviews where, uh, you know, you have this laundry list of things you want, You know how much money you're going to make and, you know, health insurance and getting a car and all that sort of stuff. And he literally, without me saying anything, ticked off each box <laughs> um, and then said, I, I want to offer you this job. I can't tell you what it is, but it's going to be something that you're really going to like. Uh, so you uh, I said, if, if Roselle offered me the job, I said, hell yes. Uh, I had to trust him, and so I I took off, ironically, back to Miami to be around the Super Bowl there, Super Bowl 13, and then off to the Pro Bowl in L.A. And about 10 days after I came back, he brought me in the office and said, okay, well, uh, you know, written all these reports of what you saw, et cetera, et cetera. I'm putting you in charge of everything we do that's in the league office that doesn't happen here on Park Avenue. So that meant the Super Bowl, the Pro Bowl, the draft, league meetings, uh, things like that. And uh, obviously, I think I was kind of taken aback, but here I was, 29 years old, basically put in charge of you know the largest sporting event in America, um, which was pretty awesome at the time. And uh, so that's kind of kind of what it was. I guess he saw what it was. I think the other thing that influenced him one of my real good friends is Dick Anderson. He played strong safety, all pro, soccer, strong safety. He was president of the Players Association. Uh, and Dick got to know Pete very well, and Dick recommended me, and I think Coach Shula recommended me. So I think that was uh, the end I had to get there. So it was a uh, – I don't think anybody ever dreams or thinks going on that you're going to be put in charge of the Super Bowl, but that was kind of uh, – nobody had been at that point. Let's put it that way. It was it was just a function of the league office. But, um that was how I jumped into it.
0: Yeah, that seems like a meteoric rise. I mean, having Don Shula as your uh, recommendation, Roselle gives you the keys. That's impressive.
1: Yeah, and it, it really was. I mean, it was, trust me, it took me a while to get on my feet to know what the heck I was doing. There was an awful lot I had to learn about what it was. And then it took a couple of years to you really started feeling um, that you could go out and take risks and you could try to make it your own. Uh, it took me a couple of years to do that. I think it was the game in Detroit in 82 that really gave me that because that was the first game that I bid all the way through the game. And the things I learned from that, you know, it was kind of the first host committee there ever was with the Super Bowl. And there were a number of things we tried there that we hadn't done before. It was little things, um, you know, I remember I walked into his office once and I said, listen, for the national anthem, there's only one person I think can do the national anthem in Detroit. And that's Diana Ross, and he kind of chuckled at me, and he says, yeah, well, sure, go ahead, kid, do what you want to do. Um, and so I literally went and knocked on the door, and Diana Ross said yes. And that kind of changed the way national anthems were done, not just at the NFL, but I think for all sports. Because uh, the previous year, the this will test your knowledge, the national anthem was done by Helen O'Connell. And if you can tell me who Helen O'Connell is, you get a gold star. But
0: uh, I cannot. Yeah,
1: she sang with the big band, some a couple of the big bands back in the 30s and the 40s. So, okay, that gives you an idea how we kind of moved it into a new era. So I think that was really important. Uh, but yeah, it's taking
0: chances. And, and you said that prior to your position oh. that there was no. Person that oversaw the Super Bowl, and there wasn't really a department that it was a functionality of the league office. Uh, how was that facilitated? You just had certain people from certain departments that would get together and try to put this the Super Bowl on, or
1: yeah, it was it was basically fell into the public relations department. Don Weiss, who was head of public relations at the time, was the guy that was kind of in charge of the game at that point in time. Now, he had been promoted to executive director when Kensel left to go to the Jets, and. uh, I think Pete more than anything wanted a couple things. He, he wanted a Don Weiss in the office <laughs> and not out on the road all the time. Think of the era before cell phones and things like that. How do you get a hold of your number two guy if he's traveling in Miami for a week or something like that? Right. So I think that was really important to him. And and he didn't. There were a lot of things that happened around the game in in Miami uh, at Super Bowl 13 that the guys that we're doing now, you know, feeling their oats, I guess. And he, he liked the idea that you can, you know, I always looked at this as like an hourglass and you take all the information at the top of it. And I was kind of the funnel in the middle and then you spread it back out at the end. And that was kind of the approach we took towards everything was giving it that, that way. So I, I think he wanted to get somebody centrally responsible for, it, you know, relating to everybody else in the office Uh, knowing full well when we got there we had to get back out again but uh, somebody else could do the legwork
0: now was don a guy that you would go to for advice if you were kind of at a fork in the road or for you if you had an idea that you wanted to run by and see if it was as good as you thought it was in that position
1: yeah absolutely at the beginning of the 80s he he was like my mentor my person like because he'd been through everything uh, that was there so he was the guy that was you know you yeah, and, and when he got to on site, you know, the two weeks before the game, he was there. He was the guy that you kind of went through everything with uh, and talked through stuff. But absolutely, he was the one who kind of led the charge at the time.
0: And what was your working relationship like with Pete Rosell? Was he someone that gave you autonomy to kind of come up with your ideas and executed as long as it was within the budget or did he kind of have things that he wanted you to implement and you had to marry your vision and his vision?
1: I think he was, you know, I don't want to say it was the idea, like you said, giving you the keys to the car, but he, in a lot of ways, it was yours to run. And I think what he always said was as, long as you don't screw up go do it. You know, so each one was a different step and the things at that point in time that you thought were, You know, a significant decision you take to him um, and what was going on. You know, I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, In 82, I had gone to um, a concert out in L.A. called the Us Concert. It was the first time I had ever seen big screens out there uh, for a concert. And Dodger Stadium was the only stadium at that point in time that had jumbotrons. And so I went and met and talked to a guy about putting a Jumbotron on, it, you know, building and putting temporary screen up at the Rose Bowl in '83. And so I remember I went to Pete about doing it, and he, he said, Yes. Now think about that. We had the replays were not something that you saw in a stadium at that point in time, uh, there was a tremendous fear that uh, the wrong thing being shown on the screen would cause riots in the stands and all that sort of stuff. So my argument was it's kind of a neutral crowd. Uh, you're not going to get that point, so we can put it up there. So I went to him. And cost a, it was going to cost hundred grand to do, uh, which in those days was a big number. <laughs> now now they might sneeze at that number, not think about it. But I uh, went to him, and, and he said, yes, go ahead and do it. And then, of course, we went on strike for nine weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, at that point in time, so when the strike was settled, I went back to him and I said, "Do you still want to do this? You know, given that maybe we should start cutting costs." Because and he said, "No, absolutely not. This this type of stuff we need to do to show that we're back. You know, nothing has changed. Now we're going to do it, and we're going to be aggressive and proactive in what we're going to take place. Now. You know, and and that was Pete. He he wanted to be the best." that was out there. He wanted to be the first to do things. He not only wanted to show off when people in the, in the league would do it, but he wanted to lead other sports and what we we're going to do. So I think anything that we tried to accomplish at that, then we tried to push it. You know, you could always look at halftime shows and that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I remember the last time I saw him, which was about 10 days before he died, we're talking, and all he wanted to talk about at that point was what we were doing with the halftime show and the anthem, uh, because I, th- I think that the Super Bowl for him was a little bit more the fun and games time with all the other stuff that was going on. But I think he was proud in all the things that we did that became kind of staples in sports, maybe maybe beyond sports.
0: And when you were named to that position there's obviously a lot of that's rushing through your head given the amount of responsibility, but what were some of your initial thoughts on how you wanted to expand and develop the super bowl into being at and more than just a game?
1: Well, I, I think it came in stages and it came with different confidence. Uh, you know, the, at the point in time I got there, you know, the game was the game, uh, you know, this, the three hours or three and a half hours. It was the game. We had a halftime show. It was done, you know, was referred to with up with people doing it all the time. Uh, I think when I got there for Super Bowl 13 was the second time up with people had done the halftime show, but it was a spectacular. And and I think what I tried to look at over time was making first the game experience the best it could possibly be, and that that would show you things. It was not so half times and anthems, but it was. The concession stands and the restrooms and the food and the merchandise that you got around it. The parking was the best, and and things like that. So we did a lot of innovation how you could do that. I mean, we put television sets in the concession stands, which nobody had done at that point in time, for a way that you could at least know what the hell was going on in the game if you went to concession stand. We Put you know radio sound in the in the restrooms or in the concourses, so you could see kind of first to do that. So it was about that. I think the next step in the process was understanding that game day was game day. It was just not uh, the three and a half hours of the game that we needed to create events around the game, which I think we started the corporate hospitality villages, which has now become multi-million dollar businesses, but I should have licensed that myself. Um, But, you know, when people would come and maybe there'd be, 15,000 people outside the stadium that were going to parties for two hours before the game, before they came in, that type of stuff. And we added to that, you know, the next element was the NFL experience, which was kind of NFL meets Disneyland. But we wanted to do that around the game so that the people that couldn't go to the corporate hospitality events had something else to go to. So we wanted to make the day, you know, an eight, nine hour experience going on. And I think the next step in that was understanding that now the hotels were imposing three and four day minimums that we had to create things that took place for three or four days. So that's where we got a lot of charitable involvement and created events like Taste of the NFL and, uh, you know, different things that were out there and encourage corporations to do events around there for people to do and bring concerts in and, and to have something to, to do on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights besides so just, you know, Sunday. And I think the first to do that was when we had the commissioner's party the first time, which started back in 67. But, you know, those type of events you created, now you've got the, you know, the Playboy party and the Maxim party, and the everybody's got to have some sort of party down there. So there was something for everybody to do. And I think the last component part was realizing that when you come into a, city, you are you know, a, a major corporate partner in that city for that year. You, you may be one of the top five to ten companies that are in that. So you've got to embrace that community like you would if you're a good good corporate citizen. So doing things like uh, giving back to charity, uh, having legacy projects that you put together, like we did with youth, the Youth Education Town, which is a New center that we built for kids that lasted for years after we were there. Um, you know, making everybody that did an event had a charitable component to it. Um, so really giving back. So there was something that benefited the community besides just the stated economic impact. Um, so I, I, I think that was kind of the overall plan. To tell for you to ask me in Jim Steig, nineteen eighty, was that what my vision was? I probably would never. <laughs> have said that. But again, it was an evolution over time, what was there. And I think that it was a natural thing from going to the game, to game day, to game week, you know, to making sure you're part of the community. And you mentioned
0: that 1982 was the Super Bowl that made you think that the game had officially transitioned to being more than a game. It had become a full spectacle. Can you talk a little bit about the feeling that you had afterwards knowing that you had gotten Diana Ross to perform at that, that you were able to really, after a few years of learning the groundwork of your position, be able to put on such a success like that?
1: Well, that's a good question. Cause I, I we, we had a major problem that year with uh, transportation, um, which gives you an idea that it's just not the game, but part of it was created because vice president Bush uh, came to the game and caused the whole traffic nightmare, uh, traffic to stop as he came into the game. Uh, we had an ice storm the week before that was out of control. But Yeah, I think when you look back on it, I, I think it made me realize the things that I did right or did wrong. I, you know, I, I'll give you a little side example of that. I got a letter. Uh, uh, this is going to date me, but, you know, you get letters from fans after the game and I, I would sit down and write everybody back you know, either accepting the criticism or giving them a reason why we did what we did. One of the people said there was, uh, they were upset because, you know, it was Cincinnati against San Francisco and a lot of people from Cincinnati just drove up. And this lady wrote saying, well, I saw that the gates opened at 8 o'clock in the morning, so I got there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Of course, the game wasn't played till 4.30. And so she sat in the parking lot and 10 degree weather and complained about that. And I said, no, the, what it said was the gates of the parking lot opened at eight o'clock, the gates of the stadium opened at two thirty. 30. So it made me say that from there on out on the tickets, you know, we would print gate, you know, parking lot opens, you know, gates of stadium open, that sort of stuff. So everybody would not make that mistake. But I, I think responding to all those letters was something there. And I, you got something we used to get. I used to get a letter every year from somebody up in like Syracuse, New York, bitching at us for all the champagne being thrown around in the locker room. And I wrote back every year and says, well, You must be watching baseball or basketball or something because in the NFL, we don't allow alcohol in the locker room post game, you don't see a champagne celebration in the locker room for after the Super Bowl. But uh, so I, I, to me, it was yeah, you you. You built your confidence year by year in what you're going to do. Um, and, and you also got to the point that when you went into a city to deal with them, you'd established a reputation uh, of what there was, and that, that could be good or bad, but at least you had a reputation going in. if it was to be fair and deal with the community properly or something, then you got a lot of benefit out of it. So I think that's part of what came out of you, too.
0: And was 1982 the first time that a Super Bowl had been played up North? Yes, it was. So do do you feel any added pressure of trying to establish a good relationship with the new city as opposed to, you know, maintaining and cultivating the relationships you have with either the West Coast stadiums or the Southern states?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, listen, that changed who we went to. Uh, I mean, think about what happened right after that. Tampa, we go to San Francisco, you know, San Diego, you know, we, we had, gotten out of the routine of new orleans you know pasadena los angeles uh, you know and houston and miami were the only places we've been before that so I, that changed dramatically you know where we went and how we dealt with them but it also like you said i think it had something to do with the fact now you're dealing with somebody brand new i think the other thing that's that happened in in detroit when we got there was we realized that if and this is why the host committee came into being in a lot of ways, is that we we'll us start with the media. If we bring the media there for a week, we've got to have something to do. And so they had to create events. They had to be overly hospitable. <laughs> you know, meet and greets at the airport, and, you know, banners and stuff out there to make you feel like you're coming into a Super Bowl city for the media to see it. Because always understand the media always sees what's right in front of them, never what's to the right and to the left. So they made sure that they they gave them the target so they could say how great things were. Uh, And they knew that the people coming in from out of town had to have something to do. So there were club crawl or or pub crawls and uh, things like that taking place around it uh, to give them something to do. And Diana Ross even, you know, in addition to doing the anthem, did three concerts on Friday night, uh, which gave people something to do. So uh, that was kind of the beginning of a lot of things, but I think it grew out of Detroit and then, you know, we went to Pasadena next year. Like I said, we went on strike, and that became kind of a a little bit of a downer. And then Tampa picked it back up again, uh, doing more.
0: And you mentioned some examples already, but what were some other trial and error lessons that you learned along the way that would that you would keep in mind for subsequent Super Bowls?
1: Well, I think there were a lot of things we did. We started with decoration packages in the stadium. You know, the stadium used to be you know, ABC banner in the end zone and whatever you painted on the field, you know, to the fact now that you've got the core packages inside the stadium, outside the stadium, you know, street, you know, street pole banners, which were created. We created in Pasadena back in, I think 83, which now you can't do an event or do anything without street pole banners. Um, you know, I, we, the one that failed that I thought was going to be a great one as I'd gone to the U S open tennis tournament and when I was there, they, they gave you little radios about this big, about the size of American Express card, which ironically is who they went to get sponsored, but they gave you that radio. And if you've ever been to the open in those days, you know, you can't, if you can't hear a racket hit the tennis ball, it really is an antiseptic environment. And so they gave you these little radios that was for the broadcast, but also gave you the sound of of that and I really like that idea. But I liked it from the standpoint that when I when you come to a Super Bowl and it's say it's Buffalo against the Giants, um and the fans coming from those two cities, they're used to listening to the game during the game to their radios in their hands or whatever it is or how that, and they can't do that at a Super Bowl. So we created a five or six channel radio that had the two home feeds, had the national tv feed it had the national radio feed had a spanish feed on it so that you could sit in your seat dial up one of those feeds and be able to listen to the broadcast and i i thought it was a great idea and we did it for like three or four years and then it just kind of died because the i guess the sponsors that we went to get it done didn't see the value to it but uh I, I another example we had was when we went to stanford old stanford stadium was old stanford stadium and Literally, if you'd never been in that stadium, it was uh, wooden planks on two by fours down the side of a side of hills, is what the the seating was, and it was eighty five thousand seats. But uh, yeah, first first day, I, first time I went there, I remember I walked around the stadium, and there at the fifty yard line, there was a tomato plant growing, where somebody had dropped the seeds from their sandwich, I guess, <laughs> before, uh, and it, it is the farm, and so the tomato. But in the end zone where the students were sitting there was a different type of things that were growing there which had seeds from it from those things that were growing uh, little wild weeds of sort in that area but um, we decided that one of the problems we had is thought the people you're bringing in the super bowl how can you bring them in there and have them sit on a wooden plank and get splinters? so had this idea to to put seat cushions down on all 85,000 seats but we'd just spent four and a half million dollars helping to renovate the stadium. It was hard to go back and look for more money. So we needed a sponsor. So I went and called on a a gentleman with a brand new company that was starting up there in Silicon Valley and asked him, you know, if they'd sponsor it, if I could put their logo on one side of it and the Super Bowl logo on the other one. And within about 10 minutes, he said yes. And that gentleman was Steve Jobs. So, so we ended up with, uh, you know, the, oops, oh. hey, back again. So we—that uh, was how we started doing seat cushions um, at that point in time. But that game brought us in temporary lights and uh, everything, Re- reconstructing sound systems and going away from single-source sound systems to distributed sound systems, uh, putting sound out on the outside at the gates and stuff like that that we all had to do because of Stanford. And that was kind of the beginning of. The corporate hospitality village. We, we ended up with 26 corporate tents at that game at Stanford. But that, a lot of things that you did, like I said, the corporate hospitality went, and, and Roselle didn't want to take the risk of us doing it. So we ended up running it through the host committees, and, and then private companies took it over. And then they started realizing the way I make more money is to charge more money. So we took it back over so we could keep control of the cost. Uh, To everybody, we figured we're charging for a game ticket. We didn't need to get more money out of you, you know, out of the corporate hospitality uh, in a lot of ways. So, they're all different ideas that came up uh, over time. I mean, one of my favorites was uh, you know, when you walk into a stadium, you usually hear a sound system over there telling you all sorts of prohibitions that you've got going into the stadium, and you just tune it out and you don't pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one year i was going through vegas and you know if you're on the people mover in vegas you go through they've got all these entertainers that kind of give you welcome to vegas type stuff i said well, why don't we do all our pro prohibitions put on speakers at all the gates but get former you know mvps and you know hall of famers to do that and so we did that and i think that maybe got more attention than <laughs> what happened before
0: now, what were some ideas, either in terms of, you know, pregame, postgame traditions or anything you wanted to do in the stadium that you didn't get to see to fruition for one reason or another?
1: Well, I think the one that was disappointed me the most was uh, postgame. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: We had an opportunity in Phoenix in, in 96 that we had Kool and the gang, playing the NFL properties tailgate party, you know, before the game. So we thought that would make a great addition to post game was to come up with something, you know, let them come out and play, you know, celebrate, you know, before we presented the trophy. Uh, And that worked really good. And I I really liked it. And we kept doing it and we ended up in uh, uh, San Diego a couple of years later. And I wanted to create a song or have a song that existed. We we had a song that we had another one that failed was we had a song that was specifically written for the Super Bowl, kind of coming off watching the Olympics and the Olympic fanfare that was there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that failed miserably because you only hear it one time a year. <laughs> it's gonna do anything for so that kind of failed. I, I ironically I think the league tried to do it about ten years after I left again and it failed again. Uh, but we, there was this one of Bon Jovi song that I thought was perfect. And there's this five to seven minutes that sits between the end of the game and the trophy presentation because the broadcasting networks goes to commercial and has to go to all the talking heads on the, on the pregame sets and all that sort of stuff before they come back. I mean, you saw it, you probably saw it even, uh, this weekend with the championship series in baseball where they go away for a while and then they come back to presenting the trophy on the field. Uh, Now that was the other thing in Phoenix was the first time we'd ever presented a trophy on the field, Uh, an idea we stole from the world cup. Um, And now everybody does trophy on the field, but we, Bon Jovi did this song. it It was perfect. I thought that would be our traditional song. And a lot of the writers who are on the West coast, started complaining, saying we're doing something else, making them miss their deadlines in our PR department. as much as I tried to explain to him that it was not affecting anything, the songs that we're playing were basically, maybe we added 45 seconds to that five to seven minutes, you know, that took place right there, but that was it. But all the writers were bitching about reaching deadlines. So that was kind of the end of doing that. Now, after I left and the league went into this long, drawn out, um, carrying the trophy out, you know, and putting it out there, which took itself a couple of minutes to add to it. So uh, I think it would have worked, different time, different place. But uh, I thought it was – per- we, we had Don Jovi there to perform the song, and it was perfect. And San Diego, I really liked it. But... Okay, but
0: That was another uh, another thing I read about you was that you were actually the one that brought the trophy celebration out of the locker room and onto the field. And that's always been – the way it's been done since I've started watching football. And it, it just seems to me like it makes sense to have it out there because it's, it's such a big celebration that it looks more monumental on the field when you have all the confetti and everything, as opposed to being in a cramped locker room. So it's interesting to hear that you actually got that from baseball. Well, no, we
1: got that from the world cup,
0: world cup, world cup, excuse me. Uh,
1: it was, you know, Lamar Hunt was big into soccer and, and in conversations with him, he was the one that thought it was a, a great idea. Yeah, it, it was a struggle because all the photographers that are on the field trying to keep them away we, we created what we affectionately called the blooming onion the way we had to creep a rope line in order to spread it out in order to, to get the players then inside the rope line get the stage inside the rope line to keep the photographers from grabbing them and uh, you know guys trying to run out and get interviews with players so it, it was a challenge to say the least but uh, uh, different but it, i think it's really worked and it really made something something it's it's more compelling and and i think at the super bowl it's even better because you know it's there it's a little tougher i think in some sports because if if it, you know if it's baseball or or hockey or basketball and you have to do the trophy presentation in front of the home crowd team that just lost uh that's a tough experience but for us i think it always worked
0: yeah, and I, I would imagine the networks would love it, too, because they you can even get more camera angles in there, too, I suppose, only having a couple around the locker room.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, the locker room was always so congested.
0: No matter what you did, it was always going to be tight.
1: I mean, maybe you liked the tightness of what was taking place. But it, the, only, the only bad side of it is that you don't get that moment where the coach and the players or whatever it is all get together immediately after the game, you know, to, to high-five, celebrate, hug, or whatever it was. Um it's You know, I saw it even in baseball yesterday, which, you know, we go back to Jim Burke where all of a sudden we let uh, the families out on the field and the kids are out on the field and that sort of stuff, you know. Ironically, Jim Burke who, with the Giants when he lifted his kid and put him at Super Bowl 21 was kind of the beginning of trying to put kids down on the field. And it's even more ironic because his kid who ended up playing baseball at the University of Miami played played against my son in football and baseball, you know, mm. in high school. But uh, uh, when I look back and think about that and realize he was a kid at that point, but he was probably at that point, give me the numbers, seven years old.
0: <laughs> and that, that is interesting how you bring up a good point about the celebration and the locker room, because it does feel a little bit more intimate when you have everybody in there together, like the, um, I think it's the, uh, Al Davis, whenever he has the he holds up the trophy and says, just win, baby. And it feels so much more pronounced, I guess, when everybody is around together and you hear the shouting in a closed room that really drives the point across or drives the moment.
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, to me, the most important, I think one of the most important events for the Super Bowl is the post-game party by the teams. You know, the, the bad part is, is that the, you have to plan a party no matter what. It's not like you can put that steamship around the beef back in the oven, uh if you lose. So you have a party one's a lot more subdued than the other one is. But, but I always said that moment in time, that party is one of the best moments you can possibly have because it's probably going to be the only time that you'll have everybody together. Because if you decide you're doing it a month later, some coaches moved on, you know, players left in free agency or whatever the heck it is. So that party is just a, a really key moment, and, and I think I've only been to one or two of those over time. I went to the Giants one in in '87 uh, because it was George Young, who was you know my friend and buddy, um, and we went to that. And, and it, it just the fact that you're all together, uh, and that emphasized to me on that And I think. Only once has that not been held. I think Winter Toes decided not to hold it, you know, in in 81 for the Eagles when the Eagles were in it, which I thought was a major mistake. Because, again, like I said, you can say, oh, we're going to get together, I'll get together in July and have a party. It's not going to happen. You know, even if you've got, you know, the Patriots saying, you know, they have this party at Crafts House or something like that, somebody's not going to make it there. You know, something's happened. So that to me is always the most the most important time to celebrate the win.
0: Now I heard you a couple of years ago when you were doing an interview with Andrew Brandt, you talked about having Michael Jackson perform the halftime show and afterwards it was difficult because you had a lot of artists that didn't want to do the halftime show because they didn't want to have to be compared to Michael or, you know, have to live up to that same expectation. Did that, I guess, blowback, have any sort of... Did you and your team ever rethink your approach to the to the halftime show, maybe in terms of the kind of entertainment that you were providing or the kind of artists that you were trying to book?
1: Well, after after Michael's performance in 93, you know, we had a hard time in 94. We ended up doing a country show because we really couldn't get... The only guy that was interested in doing it was Garth Brooks. Uh, but he wanted us to pay his... He wasn't going to pay himself, but he wanted his producer to make half a million dollars. And and we were just not going to do that. Um, that Not the number that you pay for somebody. And Garth had just come off of doing something in Texas Stadium and had an idea that that's what he wanted. I loved the idea of the show. It was just that one guy was not going to make that much money off of this. Um, so, and then the next year we went back and we thought, well, maybe we got this struggle trying to find somebody. So we decided, may you know, and it ended up being a failure. We said, let's, let's create like a music video <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. So we, we tried to tie together, you know, Indiana Jones and his chase for the Lombardi Trophy, <laughs> you know, with a bunch of the scenes from Indiana Jones things, you know, the cabaret scene, and we got, you know, who the heck was, was um, you know, gosh, Uh, left my heart in San Francisco we had him, Tony Bennett you know in the cabaret scene and Mm -hmm. different people like that around it and the problem was that I don't think anybody really understood the storyline particularly there was a a minute video that went into it that understood that the trophy was stolen (laughs) or something like that and it played on TV but didn't play in the crowd and you know anyway It didn't work. And so the next year we decided, okay, let's go back and look at the star thing. And we, again, went back to the well again with the Diana Ross. And I think her performance, and that's more notable for the fact that she flew out on the helicopter from Sun Devil Stadium. But I think that got us back on track uh, to some way doing the stars as best we could do it. We still struggled for a while with that. Uh, Maybe it took a while until we ended up with McCartney. I think McCartney changed after I left. After we did McCartney uh in '05, that opened the door to all the ones that they've done in the last 15 years i mean paul mccartney's going to do the the halftime and you can see him doing it out there as one person in the middle of the stage then i think you could always get anybody else that could do it
0: yeah that was actually the first super bowl i ever watched so i do remember that one and in terms of planning for the super bowl do you prefer an outdoor stadium or do you prefer a dome? And can you discuss a little bit about how you prepare for each of them?
1: Well, I was very fortunate that, that uh, 26 years had never rained on my Super Bowl. Um, so I was proud of that. Now, almost immediately after I left, you had the Miami Super Bowl with the Bears and the Colts and the David game long. I don't know whether that was Roselle getting even from up above <laughs> <laughs> for me not being around or whatever it was, but... I, I don't know. I like both of them. Uh, you know, we were fortunate enough that we—if you went north and you played, you played the Super Bowl in Atlanta or Minnesota or Detroit—you had to have a dome. It was there. Obviously, we also had a dome in, in New Orleans. But I, I think the outdoor adds to it. Uh, I mean, we're playing in Los Angeles and Phoenix and Tampa and and uh, Miami, Jacksonville. So I mean those provided you with the opportunity to have great weather and, and obviously had the roll of the dice if it rained, but, uh, I think they both were, I think the toughest one we ever had was the Superdome because mm-hmm. it's such an enormous building. Uh, it's that the floor of it is just staggering. Uh, when you pull the stands back in order to be able to get 75, 78,000 people in it, uh, it, it this field just kind of sits in the middle of this, immense expanse. So I think that one's very tough to make it feel intimate. But the other ones, you know, Detroit was easy and, and uh, they were all very tight in what's taken place. So I, I don't think it's that much. I, I think the thing I learned when you went up North is that the toughest battle is the concourses, because uh, if it's cold, like it was in Minnesota or Detroit, people are not going to run, walk around to gate B. They're going to go into the gate, which is closest to them. And now you've got people jammed into these concourses going back and forth, not really knowing where they're going because it's probably their first time in the stadium. Uh, and that, to me, was the biggest congestion problem that you had. In fact, that was the decision we made. Minnesota, when they presented it to us, had this master plan to go from 60,000 seats to 70,000 because our stadium size minimum was 70,000. And literally when it got there and I looked at it, I said, I can't add 10,000 more people to these concourses. You just can't do it. Um, so if you notice, that's the smallest stadium we ever played in. I think it was 60,000-something uh, for that game. Um, so I think it was – that's the toughest part is getting the fans around in, in an indoor stadium in, the, in bad weather. It's not a problem in the Superdome, and it wasn't a problem in, in Atlanta. Certainly not a problem in the new state of Atlanta. That, to me, is the most difficult thing.
0: Uh, do you oversee the uh, artwork and the design for the Super Bowls? Yes.
1: Yeah, that we're, was, we're, that fun and challenging at the same time.
0: <laughs> how so?
1: Well, I, I think, first of all, when you you start out with the, the design, you know, it's different now. The logo is just the Lombardi the Trophy with Roman numerals. But right. We... When I first got there, it was just creating a logo that was a logo. And then we evolved that into doing a logo that took on some flavor of the city. You know, I, I can think of one in uh, Atlanta when we went there in 94, that all of a sudden we had the peaches part of the logo. Yeah. And I think that was really important to be part of that. And then the artwork that goes around it that was to attach to the city I think that's what always made the Super Bowl different than anybody else. Because if you were to ask somebody, you know, remember when the Giants won the Super Bowl and they'd go, yeah, I, it was Pasadena, right? You know, they wouldn't say, oh, Super Bowl 21 or 1987. I think the cities identify more than anything where they play more so than than the number of the game or, or the year of the game. And, and, and I think that's something that's been lost a little bit in the last few years with that because that each one of those cities gives an identity to the game. Uh, and people will always remember that, you know, this is where we won was in that city. And so, yeah, it was fun. And we went through a lot of, you know, iterations, arguments, and whatever it was. I, I think the one that showed that you can do it quickly was after we got after nine 11, you know, we'd already designed logos and artwork and everything like that in New Orleans you know, we'd always go through this process of giving a lot of input to a lot of people in the league office of what they thought about it. And it would take forever to redesign, redesign. That one we just said, okay, this is what we want to do with the logo. You know, come back with me. You got three days. Because we had to get it done quick because it had to get into production. So that logo we did, which was um uh, you know the outline of the United States with American flag, uh, was something we put together in literally three days because uh, it just had to get done, couldn't go through the processes of all the debate.
0: I actually live in Atlanta, so I still see a lot of people have in their house like a poster of that Super Bowl with the peaches. Yeah. So it's interesting to see. And in my living room, I actually have a poster of the uh, second Super Bowl when it was the 1968 AFL-NFL World Championship game yeah. where you have the uh, silhouette of the ball carrier with each um, helmet, like a collage within them. So it it is interesting to see the artwork. It does look like it has a lot more character and personality as opposed to just having the trophy as part of the Roman numerals.
1: Well, and I think, I think it merchandise wise, it sells better. Yeah. You know, I, I I always argued that I didn't want to, I never wanted to sell the Lombardi trophy as part of a, you know, Mm t-shirt because I, I thought something should be kind of sacrosanct, you know? And, this is only part of, this is us, you know, this, this is what you win. There's one of what's going on. And now everybody wearing a cap with it on it. And now literally, I I mean, I get aggravated now that watching Jimmy Johnson on Fox, you know, from his home and he's got a Lombardi trophy over his shoulder. Or, or, um, you know, Michael Irvin, you know, when he was doing stuff, has got a couple of Lombardi trophies, you know, behind him or something like that. We kind of started giving him out like candy. Um, You know, still a twenty five thousand dollar investment. I guess those guys could afford to buy another one, but um, we really did protect those for a long time. I I wanted to do that, and again, I thought that the the logo sells. I mean, you know, I, I think I you want to give me a shirt or something like that with the logo on it. I'll buy that shirt with the logo on it, but I may not buy the next year if it looks almost identical to the year before, right?
0: Now, in addition to the Super Bowl, you oversaw the Pro Bowl in the draft, but you also oversaw the American Bowl, right?
1: Yeah, I did the American Bowls in Berlin and Barcelona.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, challenges in trying to make uh, an event unique towards that international market to get them to come to a game that maybe they don't know much about or maybe not even care about?
1: Well, it was interesting. Uh... You know, first game was I did was Berlin, which was um, very interesting because it was the year after the wall came down. That, oh. My first trip to Berlin was in February of '90, and the wall came down in November of '89. So I, I actually, you know, I remember I went over and stood on the remnants of the wall. <laughs> you know, so moment. I don't have a picture of that, which I wish I had, but I still got a pic- I still got a piece of the wall somewhere around here nice but uh, yeah it was more about creating an event than it was it was the game itself so uh the place we went for that game obviously old olympic stadium and this place called the myfeld which were we, Hitler gave a lot of his speeches where you saw the masses of thousands and thousands of people it was right outside it was big enough to have 12 football fields that was where we practiced the team Uh, on that and so we made that into a giant party area before the game and basically took the idea of little NFL experience a little corporate hospitality that sort of stuff and created that area for everybody to come to uh, before the game for a couple hours before the game and play games throw football do whatever it was all those things we did at the NFL experience and then we added the kind of Rasmattas of pre games and half times and things like that around it. Use the video boards to try to educate everybody during the game. Uh, you know, shockingly, we you know we sold out those games, and I think it was maybe by the time we got to the fifth one in Berlin, people understood the game a lot more than what they did before, mm-hmm. uh, and that has a lot to do with you know the World League of American Football or World League or whatever they were calling it at the time and what they were developing and getting more influence there. But I think um, it was all about the event. Matter of fact, I think I was mad at me because I was quoted this way. A guy from SI came up to me after the first game. He says, well, where'd you get these guys? Like you had the Frisbee dogs and you had the guy that was the whistler do the anthem and stuff like that. And I says, well, these are all people that always wrote me about doing something Super Bowl that will never do a Super Bowl, (laughs) but they work here. So, Uh, We kind of put the Americana on it. And Barcelona was a very unique experience because it it, it did not resonate originally. And it was a 60,000-seat stadium where they did the opening ceremonies the year before for the 92 Olympics. And uh, I think we had 15,000 tickets sold um, the day before the game. And we're really worried. And in Spain, when they go away on holiday for the month of August, which we didn't listen to, we thought we were bigger than they were. We literally go away. <laughs> and, um, the, I mean, it's like an eight-lane road that slowly goes from 4-4 to 7-3 to 6-2 to 7-1, seven, seven lanes leading out and one coming back in. But we sold – 45,000 tickets on game day to that first game, 45,000 on a walk-up to come into that stadium. So, again, it was about creating kind of an atmosphere around it and doing things that got people excited about it. You know, that's you throw all those things you think about, you know, parachute jumps in, you know, flyovers, that sort of stuff. So it was really all part of that.
0: And then in 2004, you went over to the uh, San Diego Chargers as their chief operating officer. Can you talk uh, a little bit about the experience that you brought over from managing the Super Bowl and uh, the Pro Bowl and the draft, and kind of applying that same game day experience to a franchise that has eight home games plus preseason and off season events as well?
1: Well, the Chargers were not in the best of times when I got there. Uh, mm-hmm. Gone to the Super Bowl back in 95. But they'd gone through about eight years, including the one in 15. Literally, I think, had the number one pick in the draft twice during that, the next eight years. Um, Michael Vick draft that they traded that away, and then the, the draft where they got the Ladanian, um, you know, by trading that, trading down on that pick. Um, so, I mean, there was a, a lot of things that were there. Um, they weren't drawing. Um, they were not selling out. I mean, they were. They had a ticket guarantee, which guaranteed a sellout, but they were drawn, give me the number, 50000 55000 for a game. So we really tried to, you know, I thought it was a goldmine. Uh, I just thought it was the best opportunity you could have. Uh, we had a great coach and Marty Schottenheimer who reached out to the public, and uh, we had a lot of players that were coming up, you know, Drew Brees and Ladanian and Sean Merriman and you know, guys like that that were really out there that uh, can promote the community. So we really tried to do a lot of things. You know, some we learned from the Super Bowl. We made game day something special. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I always think back. At maybe I think the greatest opening ever for Monday Night Football was the one we did there, where we had the, the helicopters leaving the. Uh, uh, shot him leaving one of the aircraft carriers out at sea, flying over San Diego and the sights of San Diego, and then flying over the stadium, and shot him flying over the stadium, and and I think Arlie Army standing out there and says, "Are you ready for some football?" And it was just, uh, it was great. We had the one after the fires in '07 when you know Arnold came down and and uh, screamed, "Go Chargers, go!" Yeah, you know, so I mean. Really tried to create something and, and, and really tried to reach out to the fans. Uh, got in a lot of trouble right off the bat because I changed the parking lot around. Uh, there was actually a website out there that was Fire Jim Stieg, or I think Jim steve is an asshole. <laughs> uh, but changed it from being the Wild West to organizing it so that people could get there. Uh, we had people lining up at 2 o'clock in the morning to drive into the parking lot to run like a land grab in Oklahoma you know, in the 1870s or something, you know, it was just, it was nuts. Uh, but we organized that for them. I think we tried to do a lot more with concessions and, and uh, everything around it that we could do. And, and we, you know, I'm very happy that I think I was there for 48 home games and we sold out every one of them. Um, did not sell out the first game after I left. and Didn't sell out the game before I started. So, um, I think it had a lot to do with what was there. We had great support in the community. Uh, we literally had a, something on every one of the five TV stations in town. Um, I remember we went to the NBC affiliate in 05 and said, hey, listen, they're going to start this thing called Sunday Night Football on NBC. You're going to be dead at, at uh, 830 at night. You're going to have nothing going on. Why don't we put together a Charger highlight film? you know, from the from the, that day and a show about that. They said, oh, no, we're going to get, we're promised that we're going to get special programming just given to the West Coast, you know, because of this, which of course never happened. So we ended up with that show starting at 8.30 at night as soon as, you know, the Sunday night game was over with. And that became something they still do to this day. So it was just creating those opportunities that were there for everything. Now, we didn't get the stadium built and we lost in a championship game, but we get a really pretty
0: good run. And it must've been nice for you to go back to a, a team all these years later and kind of see how the front office has grown within an organization.
1: Oh yeah. It, it, it was, listen, being with that team was great. And, uh, you know, we had some great experiences there and those relationships with the players and the coaches and the staff were really special. Uh, I think we all, I mean, guys like Drew Brees are very dear friends and, uh, you know, that we've stayed close to all these years and, uh, I think we shared a lot uh, when we got there, shared a lot of successes. And I was thinking the other day when they were playing um, Tampa and I remember that was the year we were four and eight uh, and we had to win out to go eight and eight and literally Denver had to lose three out of the last four for us to tie them and win the division. And we beat Tampa in week Sixteen. Mm-hmm. We're flying back on the plane, and all we could get on the screen on the TV was ESPN. So we'd sit there and wait for the crawl go go by in the Denver game, <laughs> and finally, at one point, we're some, someplace probably over Dallas, and all of a sudden the crawl comes by the Denver got beat, <laughs> and so now we're seven and eight. They're eight and seven, and we play them the next week. You know, ended up winning the division, and and the celebration we had on that plane coming back. Was pretty good. We knew damn well we were going to kick the crap out of them the next week, so we had a little good times. So we won some big playoff games. Uh, I remember when we beat Indy when Indy was thirteen and zero or fourteen and zero. We beat them there in, in 05, I think. Uh, but I remember I, I walked in the locker room and Marty turns to me and call, says, "Call Schuler." <laughs> <laughs> So, so I got Don on the phone, and we talked to him right after that win. And, well, we saved your 17-0 season again.
0: Yeah, and I go through YouTube a lot and watch a lot of the old games. And watching that 2006 uh, Chargers team was really unfortunate the way it ended, and especially ended for Marty, too, because a man that goes 14-2 rarely, if not ever, gets fired. So it was unfortunate the way that worked out because that was such a talented team.
1: Well, that was a great year. I mean, there were so many things that went right, and then all of a sudden it all went wrong. Uh,
0: yeah. You know, I ended up the next day,
1: I probably shouldn't say this, but uh, Mike Cyphers, Dave Ben, Nate Kading, and I, we, we, we got close to because there's, the group you can get close to is the kicker and the long snapper during practice. Mm-hmm. But they're not practicing. <laughs> you know, so you sit around and talk to them a little bit. Right. And uh, but we went out drinking on uh, Monday after that. I, I remember my wife calling like at two o'clock saying, where the hell are you? <laughs> it was just the four of us out there, you know, kind of drowning our sorrows after that game. But it was, uh, yeah, it was some very special moments. I, I remember when we beat Seattle that year to clinch home field and it was played in driving rainstorm, but you know, I was up in a suite, so I wasn't wet and I go down in the locker room and, uh, Chris Dealman, you know, all 310 pounds of him, comes up and he's soaking wet and he hugs me.
0: <laughs> well,
1: now I'm soaking wet, you know, but yeah, those memories were really great and special. I, I, I mean, Marty was a, just a, a great friend. Um, you know, as much as you're with the team, you always relish those days you get off, and Saturday afternoons were always kind of those you know, you go, go to practice in the morning and then you're off in the afternoon. Inevitably, at eleven thirty every Saturday in a home game, I get a phone call from Marty saying, "We're going to go play golf." Uh, So we'd go play golf, and it was—I felt I had to because for five hours it got him away from the game, Mm -hmm. not thinking about it, and then he could go back to doing it. You know, go back to the meetings, and that that night that ever took place. But uh, yeah, it was just some really good times.
0: And um, just a couple more questions about the Super Bowl. What do you think, from an event standpoint, was your favorite Super Bowl? And from a game standpoint, what was your favorite?
1: Well, I think the most important one and the thing I I think meant the most was Super Bowl 36, the one after Mm -hmm. 9-11. I think what we accomplished was critical to the country. Um, You know, if you look back at that point in time, people were not traveling. Afraid to get on airplanes. Uh, people were not going to events. Uh, ironically, if you look at that, we had booked Janet Jackson to do the halftime show. The irony in that one. But she bailed on us because she was afraid to be in a big stadium, uh, which was good for us at that point. You know, Obviously, you two did a fantastic halftime show at that. Uh, but it was um, what we had to do, moving the game back a week, the struggles to get that accomplished. And then everything we did, particularly in conjunction with David Hill at Fox, in creating around game day. Uh, and, you know, we credentials, which now, if you go to a game, the credential you get is basically redesigned in the span of about a week and a half to get done for that game. Uh, you know, the security we had to put around it, working with the Secret Service, and uh, the safety factors we had, and the fact that uh, when we concluded that game, it was run on clockwork and obviously won on the last play of the game, you know, and craft with his line, you know, you know, we're all Patriots today or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and it got everybody, I think that and then the Olympics the next two weeks kind of got the country back. And, and I think it showed the impact of what sports can be. It's got a little parallel to what it can be now with what we're going through with the pandemic but the ability to get everybody back and doing something, I think sports can lead the way. And I, I thought that game, there was, there was an awful lot of pressure to make sure everything worked well that week. And, you know, we could have had anything happen, you know, a bomb going off in bourbon street or something like that, that would have caused all these problems. But the cooperation we had from the feds and the state and the city and everybody to make sure that that worked, it was incredible. And, the things that we were able to do in a short period of time. Like right? We talked about like the logos and stuff like that, that you just don't do because you had more time to think about it. So I, I think that was really, a, to me, was the one that was most important, probably the one I had the most accomplishment and felt most pride of. And um, thought, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of lost. I, I think it was the most important event in National Football League because it, it was just one of those things that, you know, turned the tide of the country. And I, I was just proud of everybody and what they did and glad that I had a part of it.
0: Absolutely. And what about your favorite uh Super Bowl game?
1: <laughs> um I don't think I had one. I think I was glad when they were all over. Wow. So yeah. I, I'll give you the I'll give you the one that was you know, I, I as I said at the very beginning, I grew up a Giants fan. In Boston, and, you know. Then when George Young goes to work for the Giants, you know, I still had an attachment to him. But you know, guys like the Broncos always thought I was prejudiced toward him. But I tried really hard not to be. Mm-hmm. But one of the great stories that happened with them is after Super Bowl twenty-five, which you know was the year of the Iraq War and everything going on, and obviously Wide Right <laughs> game. And uh, so the game's over you know, get everything done, trophy presentations done, everybody's cleaned out of the locker room. And I don't know why I did this. So it's maybe an hour and a half after the game. So I'm walking around the stadium. So I walked into the Giants locker room, and there's absolutely nothing in the locker room. I mean, it, there's tape strewn all over the place, and trunks are gone, and all the equipment's gone, except for one thing. Sitting on the table in the middle of the room was the Lombardi trophy. Nobody had taken it home. Wow. So I called George up and I said, you guys missing anything today? Is there something you might want to have at your party? Is there something you're missing? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, I'll, I'll give it to Parcells in the morning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. That just shows the level of excitement when you forget the most valuable part of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the one thing you wanted all the way through it. You know, you figure somebody would have a responsibility. I guess the owner figures, the GM will get it. GM, yeah. the coach will get it. The coach figures, the equipment guy will get it. You know.
0: Now, last question I have is that if you were part of the NFL staff today for the Super Bowl, what ideas would you try to implement um, that you think would be good for the for the event?
1: Well, I think this year is going to be very unique. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got to figure out how you're going to manage it with whatever the amount of people you can get there and, and how you create something that is safe. Uh, you want people – you want people in Tampa to have something to do, with anybody that's coming into town? I mean, how do you make it feel like you could get on an airplane or whatever? Not that popular. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, how do you make it safe and how do you make everybody feel there and how do you create events that are probably more open air? Mm-hmm. Know that you're not going to spread the virus in any way, shape, or form. You know, it means that. I mean, the NFL experience, which has now kind of gone into convention centers and things like that, it's probably got to figure out a way to be outdoors uh, and create different things. that's ironically how it started there. Uh, when we first did the NFL experience in, in 91, it was outdoors in the parking lot. Um, but I think that uh, you've got to create things for people to do that where they feel safe and they don't feel congested. And, uh, the safety thing. I, who knows where we're gonna be you know come February, mm-hmm. this, but let's assume right now that it's it's not gonna be quantumly different <laughs> than right. we are at the moment. Uh, and you know it, it's everything. how you know, does the media cover it to uh, have the players feel safe? Uh, you know, I, I saw something the other day that they talked about not bringing the teams in Until two days before the game so bring in a week before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what does that do around, you know, how do you cover them? How does the media cover them? How does everything go on with that? Um Can't do all zoom calls, you know, with the coach, with everybody on them, you know, it's kind of, you lose that uh, atmosphere around it. So I think you've got to figure out ways to be able to make everybody feel safe around the environment. It, it's a, it's a definite challenge. I think, um, I, I'd love I would love to have had the opportunity to try to figure out what to do. But the good news is I don't have to.
0: I guess. You did your time, right? Yeah. All right, Jim. Well that's all I have for you. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you. You know, you're uh you're a man that has a very unique place in the history of the NFL and the history of football. So I thank you for taking the time.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate those kind comments.
0: All right, you have a good one.
1: You got it.